Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 551 for March 31st, 2021. On today's show, an archival interview with pianist Marilyn Crispell. So this episode comes from 2009, very early in the life of the show, within a couple years of when it started, April of 2009, as a matter of fact. And you're hearing it uh, partly because I think it's cool every once in a while to dig back into the archives, but also because I had a couple different interviews fall through in preparation for this week for reasons, you know, kind of beyond my control. And therefore, I needed something to fill that gap. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, who haven't I had back on again since their first appearance? And for no fault of her own, Marilyn is one of those people. So um, I wanted to go back in for folks who are maybe more recent listeners to the show and uh, play you an interview that you might have missed the first time around. I clearly remember going to Marilyn's place in Woodstock to record this interview. Um, I don't know if that's where she still is or if she's still in the same home or anything. But it was really lovely to meet her. Just such a kind soul. And uh, I had such a, a great time getting to chat with her. I haven't listened to this interview s since it came out back in the day. So I'm going to experience it with you and, and uh, see kind of what it brings back memory wise. I wanted just to remind you before we dive into the interview, which might have some out of date, uh, you know, fundraising or whatever inside it. So, you know, ignore all that. But listen to this, which is recorded in 2021, which is to say, uh, if you would become a member of the show, it's a great help to me. As you know, I now live in a van and I travel around and do interviews and I live on significantly less than $1,000 a month. So every $5 membership or $10 membership makes a huge difference to my finances. And believe me, it is not frittered away on you know yacht payments or whatever. I'm not saying I wouldn't fritter it away on yacht payments, but that's a little beyond the scope of less than $1,000 a month. And actually, I wouldn't fritter it away on yacht payments. So anyway, if you could become a member, that would be awesome. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join, thejazzsession.com slash join to do that. Now, let's go back in time 12 years and see what was up. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com, where, in addition to episodes of the show, you'll find written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. This week's guest is Marilyn Crispell, and we'll get to the interview with her in just a moment. But first, I just wanted to tell you uh, a little bit about where I've been since last November. Uh, I believe it was episode 51, and uh, it's been a long time since I've done a show. And the reason for that is I've actually had some pretty serious health problems that have uh, kept me sidelined. And so I've had a bunch of interviews in the can from uh, the end of last year, including uh, with the Wee Trio... Uh, David Sanborn, Henry Grimes, Barbara Dennerline. I think there's a few others in there, too. Uh, uh, Mark Myers from the Excellent Jazz Wax blog. And I've got uh, all those uh, backlogged and waiting to come out to you. So I, I think I'm getting to the point now where I'm uh, 
I'm stable enough that I'm going to be able to to produce some shows at my my previous regular schedule, and hopefully uh, hopefully the worst is behind me and we can plug on forward here with some great jazz. Uh, there are many wonderful albums that have come out recently and uh, I've received, and I just uh, I'm chomping at the bit to get back in the interviewing game again. So. For all of you who've uh, stuck with me during the uh, the hiatus, thanks so much for doing that. And uh, you'd help me out a lot if you'd tell a friend and just uh, pass on the word about the jazz session to other folks who uh, who like jazz or just like hearing interviews with interesting artists and musicians. So, as I mentioned, uh, my guest this week is Marilyn Crispell. She released an album on ECM uh, toward last fall, I guess it was, called Vignettes. And uh, so... Th- you know, one problem of it taking so long since I interviewed her to actually put the interview out is that toward the end of it, she's going to refer to some uh, shows that have already passed now. So uh, you'll get to hear what she was doing at the end of last year. And other than that, I don't think you'll see any uh, diminution in quality from the fact that the interview is a few months old now. So the record is incredible, absolutely uh, worth your time, and From that record, let's just start off with uh, the very first track, Vignette 1. My guest is Marilyn Crispell. Her new album on ECM Records is called Vignettes. It's a solo piano recording, and it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for coming to talk to me. So I once heard, I can't remember who I heard say this, but some film critic say about an actor when he watched him that he said, you can actually see him think in the movies, which is a hard thing to do. And when I was listening to this record, it really sounded to me very intentional, like you could hear 
uh, I don't mean cerebral, but you could hear your, your thoughts and intention going into the album. Can you talk about why a solo piano record now and why this particular repertoire? Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't done a solo recording in years, and I wanted to do something that was very different um, in the sense that in the, in the past years, I've gotten more lyrical, and I wanted to explore that. I, I wanted to have a certain kind of discipline that comes from recording with ECM and working with Manfred Eicher. I wanted to do a solo recording in that way. What does discipline mean in this well, context? Well, what it means is exactly what you were talking about. You know, not, not that there was not intention in my previous recordings, but it, it was, it's a different kind of thing. It's very hard to describe. It's very hard to describe. It's not that I was um, taking extreme control of everything that happened, rather that I was being extremely aware of everything that happened, rather than just going into the zone and letting stuff happen. I, I was trying to be extremely aware of it, as if I were listening to it while it was happening. That sounds like a, a kind of unique challenge to place on yourself, though, rather than just letting yourself getting completely carried away? Yes, and that's, that's what I meant by discipline. Mm. Exactly. Uh, did that influence, uh, I know this is, I believe I know that this record is a combination of completely free improvised things, and I know there are things like Axis, which has been performed live before, and other people's compositions. Did that decision uh, to move in that disciplined direction, did it influence what you chose to play? Absolutely, absolutely, it did. Um, I, I tended to structure things more carefully, and to focus on certain type of music, to, to focus more on the lyrical, the lyric side of the music. Did it, did it change the satisfaction you got out of it or the way you felt about playing it? Was it different for you emotionally or intellectually? Well, <laughs> to answer your question in a strange way, I, I would say that it was a, just a different means of arriving at an end and that I loved the results. Um, I felt like I accomplished what I set out to do. I didn't set out to play everything I could or would ever want to play. I set out to do a very particular kind of thing and there, there was a lot of material recorded that we didn't use. So the material that was chosen, I'm I'm very happy with. You uh, you chose two compositions by other people. I wonder if you could just talk about both those compositions and, and why you chose them. They're both really lovely. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I have been playing in Scandinavia since 1992, and the effect of the Scandinavian musicians and their music on me has been very profound. That uh, piece that I play of Arva Hendriksen's Still a Vey, is a piece that I played on a tour. Uh, He was part of the group that I was on tour with several years ago. There's also a piece by the bass player Anders Jormin called Note, N-O-T, that I I play. But I 
change between them when I get tired of playing one to play the other. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and, and so I played Arva's piece. And then the other piece, Cuida to Espiritu, is by a friend of mine here in Woodstock named Jana Nelson, who is a flutist and pianist and composer, a wonderful musician, and she's written a lot of beautiful music. And I just had this in my book. I, I often carry things around for years before the right situation happens for me to play them. And this was the right time. It just seemed to fit. And and I didn't realize what it meant. It means take care of your spirit in Spanish. And she had written it for her father. And two weeks after I did this recording, my father died, and he had been ill for quite a while, and I, I knew that that was going to be happening soon. So in a way, it, it fit better than I even (laughs) had planned, you know, because that was like saying to my father, you know, take care of your spirit wherever you are. Is this a piece that that Jaina had written for? For her father. Yeah. mm -hmm, For, for piano. That's really, it's really gorgeous. I, I uh, particularly like. I think for me, maybe my favorite spot on the record is uh, gathering sunlight. Oh, gathering light. Or gathering mm-hmm. light. Sorry, gathering I always light. refer to it as gathering sunlight for some reason. Um, is that a, a composed piece? An improvised no, piece? No, no, improvised. But I, I think a lot of the feeling of Scandinavia came into that piece, also, as well as the piece called Sweden. What kinds of effects, uh, I know you've written about this at length before and, and talked about it many times, but can you talk a little more about the effects on your music that, that your Scandinavian connections have had? Well, when I first heard the Scandinavian musicians in 1992, uh, it was when I went to Stockholm to be part of a festival called Solo 92. And there were a lot of different musicians who played solo and then got put together in different experimental groups. And that was the first time I heard Anders Jormin, the bass player, and um, who at that time was playing with Charles Lloyd and Bobo Stenson, still plays with Bobo Stenson, and Raymond Street, the drummer from Stockholm. 
And um, also, in fact, the first time I heard Barry Guy play, and I was profoundly affected by all of them. But the, the thing about the Swedish musicians was this lyrical quality, this tender, beautiful, somewhat sad uh, quality that made me think of the North. It was very mystical, made me think of long expanses of ice and snow and quiet. And I relate to all that. I'm not a tropical, summery kind of person, you know. <laughs> um, and there's just something very cozy about it, something profoundly human, you know, to be <clears throat> inside in this very, very cold weather with the wind howling outside and little candles everywhere, lights everywhere. And there, there is just a quality about the people I met there that I, I hate to generalize, but there is more of a, a kind of innocence. Uh, life is slower. I met some of the rock stars there. Nobody is on an ego trip. People are very humble. Um, they're very humanitarian. They have a great social government, social system. I, I just related to the whole thing, related to everything. And right at that point, I was starting to think more about this lyrical quality that I think has always been in my music to a certain extent, always, but not to the extent that it is now. And it was something that I wanted to explore more. So it just happened to coincide with meeting them and figuring out this, the project of the Annette Peacock music that I wanted to do for ECM, if possible, and, and they wanted to do it too. So everything sort of coincided in a very good way. Was the fact that the, the lyricism wasn't as uh, prevalent or, or primary in your music, is there, is there kind of a stigma being a woman in jazz and not instantly falling into the the pretty lyrical camp, or I don't know. Is that not related at all? I don't know. When I first started uh, playing out, uh, people would come up to me and say, "Oh, you play like a man." I, I didn't know it was a woman playing, and and I always took that as a big compliment because I knew they meant it as a compliment. <laughs> but, Despite how obnoxious uh, it is, but, yeah. <laughs> but still, still, if I meet people for the first time and tell them what I do, they just assume that I'm a singer. You know. Sure chick singer <laughs> so, no i play the piano and actually there are women who play bass and drums and all kinds of things but yeah people do tend to think of you know the girl singer and they don't expect to hear stuff that sounds like cecil taylor or whatever you know they don't expect to hear that you uh certainly most uh, me and I'm guessing many other people um, first became familiar with you through Anthony Braxton and uh, a lot of the work that you did with him. And uh, when you, when you were growing up, was music like you were playing with Anthony Braxton anywhere on your horizon or did it come to you in some kind of epiphany moment? Or, I mean, how did you get introduced to music like that and decide that it fit with who you were? Well, when I was about 14 years old, I started going to a small music camp in Northern Vermont I, at the time, my family was living in Baltimore, and Peabody Conservatory is in Baltimore, and there's a, a prep department for younger kids. And I was taking theory and composition lessons with a woman who had this summer camp for uh, young people who were involved in composition. 
and a lot of people were composing in a contemporary, very contemporary style, and so I, I guess I first heard that kind of music there, and then when I went to New England Conservatory, which I went to for four years as a composition major first, and then switched over to piano major, I focused a lot on contemporary classical music. I also have been improvising for modern dance classes since I, I went to that music camp. I had a scholarship there, and um, and I had to play for modern dance classes. So I was always attracted to that style of music and also to Baroque music, and not very much to the Romantic music in between. You know, I, I wasn't very attracted to anything between Bach and and Schoenberg or Webern for a long time. And what's interesting to me now is that I listen to some of the music I play and it sounds like some of that romantic music that I didn't want to play when I was younger. It's like the missing link is there now. Why were you? Uh, why do you think you were attracted to both Baroque and contemporary music? Is there a, a common element in those two musics? That not necessarily um, the contemporary music. It just you know I think you're attracted to um, what fits your psyche, basically. So it was like the key went in into the lock there, you know. Um, and with Baroque music, it's just so incredible in, in every way, you know. I'm very into counterpoint. You know, I, I've always been more into line, counterpoint, energy, shape, rather than harmony. Harmony has been the last thing that I've been dealing with, the latest thing. I've always been more into rhythm, line, counterpoint, shape, and all that. Um, and, and of course, harmony is implicit in a lot of that, but I'm, I'm talking as far as... Um, jazz harmony, chords, chord changes, that kind of thing, was the most difficult thing for me to come to terms with. I, I don't know, Baroque music, it, it just, it's so satisfying, you know, mathematically, <laughs> <laughs> um, rhythmically, I, I don't know, I just love it. 
And vignettes really seems to, I don't know if it's all about line, but a lot of it seems to be about line. I mean, it seems to have, it seems to be a building of structures and, and really gorgeous in that way. I mean, and sometimes it seems like it's just pure melody, um, almost taken away from the harmonic aspect, at least when I hear it. I don't know. I guess everyone hears different things, but. Mm, well, probably you're hearing it right. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. I win the jazz contest. That's wonderful. So you said earlier, um, that ECM itself tends to, to foster a certain kind of, uh, approach to recording or, or discipline. Is this an album that you probably only would have made for ECM? I think I, I could have made it for other labels if I had wanted to, mm. but I really wanted to make it for ECM. I wanted to work with Manfred. It's like wanting to do something and choosing someone to be your teacher, in a sense, to guide you on, on a certain path that you've chosen at whatever point you're at in your life. Um, it's like when I first got into jazz and I wanted to study traditional jazz even though that that wasn't what I ultimately wanted to play so for two years I worked like crazy with a teacher in Boston named Charlie Benakis who used to teach at Berkeley but has taught privately for a long time and um, it was extremely valuable and there was a lot of drudgery involved and I would never have done it on my own so it's possible if I had done this recording for another label, it wouldn't have come out the same way because um, I I wouldn't have been trying to listen through through someone else's ears in a sense. And, and not that I wasn't playing what I wanted to play, but I was filtering it through imagining hearing it through someone else's ears and what's uh, what was manfred's role as the the recording kind of moved along what well i mean he's he's a producer he makes the final decisions he'll listen to something he'll decide if he thinks it works or not um sometimes we disagreed and he was always willing to listen to my point of view and all during the, the time I've been recording with him, if I'm adamant about including, about thinking that something is really good that he's not sure about, he always ends up including it. And in fact, on the first recording or so that I did for him, I was kind of steering away from certain types of wild energy things. And he was the one who said, well, we, we want to show everything that you do. We want to show all the different facets of, of what you do. It sounds like a real collaboration, though. Yes, yeah, very, very much a collaboration, very much a collaboration. And usually, if he feels strongly about something, I end up agreeing with him. Most of the time, I'd say 95% of the time, I end up agreeing with him. And... On every recording I've done, there has been one thing that I've had to work over or change. Um, occasionally, it hasn't been something that I would have changed and still wouldn't be. But, you know, he, he was hearing a certain thing. I respect what he was hearing. He's also very good at choosing the order of the pieces. And if he's not sure something is going to work, he'll often make it work by 
putting it next to a piece that it works next to, you know. We were just talking before the interview started about uh, you're just coming back from Australia and New Zealand, spending three weeks there, and and uh, the weather is very similar here now, I'm sure. But um, I'm wondering, uh, now that you've, or after you've recorded this record, and then you go out and do solo performances, are you finding things either in this material or in your solo playing that's even now moved past where you were at when you made this record, which I guess you made last year, right? You actually recorded it last year. Well, it's always changing. I, I would say the thing that I'm working on the most is um, an organic relationship between this very strong energy type of playing and the more lyrical playing, because it is all my expression, and I see it all fitting together, and I'm working on making seamless transitions in and out of the different aspects of what I do, it seems to work. I'm judging from feedback of audiences, it, it seems to work. I'm just trying to play whatever I feel. And sometimes I'm not quite sure what that is. That I think the hardest thing is to figure out exactly what it is that you're hearing at any given time. I think that's actually the hardest thing. Once you know that, you can write it, you can play it, whatever. You mean what you're hearing internally? What it is yeah. that? Okay. Yeah. You uh, you said that uh, actually again off off the uh, tape here, but you said that when you were in Australia and New Zealand, you were paired up several times with people that you never played with before, which I imagine has happened in the past as well. What uh, what particular challenges or or joys does that does that bring to play with someone for the first time? Well, it's um, it's wonderful. Usually wonderful. I mean, most most of the times I've done that have been fantastic and have caused me to play in a way or play certain things that I might not have done if I had been on my own. It's like having a conversation with somebody. You don't really know where it's going to go. And what you're talking about really depends on where the conversation is going, what somebody else is saying, and you can't know what that's going to be. It takes you out of your comfort zone. You really, really have to listen. I think you have to allow yourself to be generous. It's not about proving what you can do. It's about really listening and making music with all the people you're playing with in a way where everybody sounds good and everybody is happy playing what they're, they're playing. I, I've done that quite a lot. I mean, that, that's something that happens often, for instance, at the Vancouver Jazz Festival and in Sweden. There, there's a festival in Vesteros, Sweden, called Nya. Nya, oh, I can't probably can't say it right. Nya Perspective, New Perspectives. And every time I've gone there, the premise has been that I have to play with people I've never played with before. So they've put me together with quartet, a quintet, and it's always been just beautiful. Does that tend to be free music that you all compose together yeah, on the spot? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, occasionally I'll bring a piece or two, or one of the other people, Paula Danielson brought a piece, and uh, I brought a piece the last time. But in general, most of it is free, and we might discuss something, some areas that it would be, that, that we would enjoy going to. You know, I, I might say, well, I love to play free over different kinds of time, or a free ballad feel or African rhythm kind of feel with mallets or whatever it is, I might 
talk about the different types of things I like to do, but there's no guarantee that's going to happen at all. Or if it does happen, it might happen in a way you totally don't expect. For instance, I just was in Perth, Australia, and I played with a bass player and drummer there, and I, I happened to mention I like playing free over different kinds of time. And so we did that. The bass player changed the time every several seconds, every few seconds it would go faster, slower, faster, slower, faster, slower. And it was really fun. But I kind of, that wasn't exactly what I had meant or what I expected. So, yeah, it takes you out of your comfort zone and, and, and it's fun, it's challenging, it's living on the edge, except you're doing it in front of a whole bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The, uh, I've been pretty freely using the word free here, and I asked you earlier about Gathering Light, which, as it turns out, is a, a free piece of music. I'm making air quotes, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. uh, but I actually had to ask you whether it was a composed piece of music or completely free, because even in the things that are free, uh, particularly on this uh, this record vignettes that we've been talking about, there's a lot of thematic statement, and uh, you know, it sounds like once once something strikes you, you're developing yeah. it like any musician. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like Amaryllis. Uh, on, on the CD Amaryllis. That sounds like a piece that was written out, and in fact, I went back and wrote it out after we recorded no it. No kidding. Yeah. Um, and it just started out with Gary playing this repeating bass line, very simple bass line over and over. And that melody just came to me, and I played it. So I, I think when when you're really tuned in, when free improvisation is really at its best, um, it, it does have that kind of spontaneous logic and continuity. I, I always refer to it as spontaneous composition. Um, I don't know if, if that's a good analogy, but I, in a way I do hear it like that, that it, it has to make sense. Free doesn't mean just um, messy. It doesn't mean messy. It just means not predetermined. It must be really fun to have moments like Amaryllis or, or any of the thousands of moments that you've probably had on, on concert stages. It is fun. It is fun, yeah. Is that, what, what, what is it that makes continuing to do this worth it? It seems like uh, a difficult road to hoe. 
It is. Um, what makes it worth it is having the opportunity to do something I love, which is play music, to express myself, to communicate with people. I'd, I'd say that's of the ultimate importance. Because um, when I'm at home, I don't practice this stuff. You know, I might practice a composition or something. But for me, the ultimate thing is being is playing for people and feeling a sense of communication. In a very real sense, they are a part of the music. They're a very necessary element of the music. Um, and, and I'm not just saying that. I absolutely feel that to be of extreme importance. Why? How so? Um, because they also are shaping how the music goes. What The energy that's going back and forth between us is shaping how the music goes. I could be up there not connecting with them and just playing, but it would be a very different thing, and that's not what I'm after. That's not why I do it. How do you know if you're connecting? I feel it. It's just a feeling. It's a tangible feeling. So you really can feel something different if... You can just tell, even though people are sitting there silent in both cases, yeah. you can tell the difference between an audience that's really responding to what you're doing and not. Yeah, I think I can. Wow. I, I think probably most of us can. Yeah. Yeah, that's really amazing. And are those moments of connection rare or are they common? Are they? Is that usually what happens? Or um, I wouldn't say they're rare. I wouldn't say they're rare. I'd say it's more rare to have a lack of any feeling of connection. Mm. I'd say that's more, much more rare. Because the crowd is kind of a self-selecting group? In that way, you know, I, I don't know. I, I've always felt if you do what you do with conviction and honesty and love, that people will relate to it. But if you're sitting up there thinking and worrying about whether or not people are going to like it or this or that, then right away you're taking yourself out of that um, Zone. I keep calling it the zone. That's what I think of it as because I definitely go to a place. I feel like I go to a different place. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was talking to uh, Satoko Fuji, and uh, we were talking about uh, free music. And she said that people often say to her, "I don't know what to listen for," or you know, "I don't, I don't get it." And she said she actually thinks there's a lot. It's a lot harder to get, like hard bop, for example, where chord progressions are flying by you very quickly, and you have to try and figure out what is the soloist actually doing and what's the theme and you know mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And she said she felt that her music was actually a lot easier to connect to emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if, if you think well, that makes sense. I, I I don't know about that. That I would agree with that because I think what people relate to in in hard bop is the energy. It's energy. Um, but it's probably a format that they're more familiar with, so they feel more comfortable with it. If you play Cecil Taylor for little kids, they'll get up and dance because they don't know that they're not supposed to, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, we, we have no education, no exposure in this country at any kind of early age or in the schools. I mean, other, other countries have programs where they send musicians around to the schools. We could do so much, and we don't really do much of anything. Um, there are venues in this country that would like to put on this kind of music. They have no funding. They can't afford to do it. And some of the bigger venues uh, don't do it because they figure it's not commercially viable. It's, it's like a catch-22. It's like a vicious circle. 
you don't get promoters interested in it because they think it's not commercially viable. Well, you have to, sometimes you have to work to make something commercially viable. And sometimes it's not all about being commercially viable. Um, there are people who actually put money of their own on the line in order to do something that they want to do. I mean, I, I've done that also. There's a guy in Baltimore named Bernard Lyons who is English, but he's lived in Baltimore for seven or eight years. And because he wanted to hear this kind of music and there was no venue where he could hear it in Baltimore, he started a series himself and took the money out of his own pocket. I mean, he's a bartender. He's not a rich guy. And, you know, he didn't go way overboard, but he did manage to start this series, which now is getting known and get some grants and get some funding. But he was willing to invest in something he believed in and loved. And I often have the feeling in this country that people are not willing to do that. And I can understand that. It's a little scary. But the result of that is that everything becomes about money and whether or not it's commercial and whether it's going to sell and marketing and the mass media thing and what people people are fed and and um, record companies making stars out of people so they can sell a lot of records and make a lot of money it all has very little to do with music you know and it really turns me off I have never even attempted to record for one of those big American companies if they even would have wanted me you know I just wasn't interested in in being part of all that and does that mean that you're sitting in front of very different audiences when you play in the U.S. versus when you play in Scandinavia? Or When I play in the U.S., people are so enthusiastic, and they, they invariably say, well, how come we haven't heard this kind of music before, and where can we find the CDs, and where can we hear more of this music? They do relate to it. They relate to the energy. It's like a journey from the beginning to the end of the concert. They don't have to know intellectually what's going on. You know, um, I mean, I don't know how Cy Twombly painted his paintings. I just know that I love them. I relate to the color and the rhythm and the energy of the paintings. I don't know how he did it. So it's not necessarily important for people to know, well, you know, what is that and what does that mean and all that. Um, it means one thing to me, it means something else to somebody else. So I usually tell people, just sit there and allow yourself to experience it. You're not going to understand everything. You're probably not going to relate to everything, but just be open. We're, uh, we're having this conversation in, in Woodstock, New York, and uh, I know that a lot of musicians and other artists make their home here. Is there, is there something about living here for you that is more conducive to uh, being a composer or a musician or just being a, a person, human being, than living in a, the city or someplace else? Well, I came here originally, I was living in Boston at the time, and I came here in 1977 to check out the Creative Music Studio, which was a school run by Carl and Ingrid Berger. Sure. It was a wonderful place. Um, they had teachers from all over the world, world music, modern jazz, also some, some modern classical composers. Christian Wolff was up there, Frederick Chevsky. Yeah. Um, Pauline Oliveros, etc., etc. John Cage was there. Um, 
world music, teachers from Africa, Turkey, Brazil, China, all over, uh, and students from all over. And I came to check it out one summer and went back to Boston, got my stuff, and moved here. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I've been here ever since. It's beautiful. There is a nice community here, a lot of artists, musicians, writers. It's two hours from the city. It's not that convenient, but it's not that inconvenient. It's three hours from Boston, four hours from Cape Cod, where I lived for three years, which I love to go back and visit, back to and visit. Um, it's an easy place to live. I can afford to live here. Things are on a human scale. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to say, by the way, about your previous question, the stuff I was talking about is I didn't mention Bob Roosh and Cadence Records. He has definitely invested in what he believes in, and I absolutely wouldn't want to leave him out of this discussion. I, I think that um, he's done very important work with Cadence Records and distribution. And, in fact, the first recording I ever made was for Cadence called Spirit Music. Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree more. So, and and I'm sure there there are other people around. Um, there's Tom Gorelnik at Outpost in Albuquerque. I mean, there, there there are people around. But I guess what I'm saying is that the culture, in large, you know, has an awful lot more to do with money than other qualities, like spirituality, art love <laughs> whatever That's Marilyn Crispell from her album Vignettes on the ECM record label. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is available for free in iTunes. Please take a minute and subscribe so you're always up to date. You can also listen at thejazzsession.com, where in addition to episodes of the show, you'll find written interviews, live jazz news, and lots of jazz links. 
You'll also see a mailing list there. It would be great if you would sign up. Many hundreds of other people have already done that, and it just helps keep you up to date about what's happening on the show. And it's also a good way to find out early about giveaways of CDs, which I do very often on the show. For more interviews and reviews, please turn your attention to allaboutjazz.com. It's the world's largest jazz website. It's amazing. Uh, you'll find my stuff there, but you'll also find many, many other talented and, and dare I say, more talented uh, writers and reviewers uh, whose opinions are, are worth checking out. The theme music for this show is by my good friends, the Respect Sextet. They are online at respectsextet.com. Please go there. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who last I checked is not online, but who designed the wonderful logo for the show. Most importantly, I say it again, I said it at the top of the show, it's great to be back, and the the reason it's great to be back is because you are there listening. So thank you so much uh, for being here, and I hope that you will come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.